Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor quality industry. Today is episode 125 on Friday, May 22nd, 2009. My name is Cliff Slotnecker, the Z-Man. Radio Joe is in the Grand Caymans uh, teaching a class today. Our wingman, Chris Boisel, is at the controls. Good afternoon, everyone. And guest hosting in studio is Environmental Annie Ann Koalecki. Thanks, Cliff. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with our guest, Patrick Moffitt, the What's News segment with Glenn Fellman, uh, comments by Dr. our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and a roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with the wingman's help, have been working on the IEQRadio.com website, uh, we work on it each week. We add, add a blog and improve the show uh, website every week. We've also changed the invitation and news announcements from IEQ and IEQ Training Institute. First, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Our newest advertiser is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable, mobile, PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, now available online. It's the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, a restoration abatement contractor shop at jondon.com. All right. Please thank those sponsors for us. They help uh, bring the show to you here every week. To contact the show by phone, simply call 724 444 7444 and enter our show ID which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website www.iqradio.com and following the link that says go to the show or you can get the show from iTunes. You can also get your IICRC continuing education credits or IEQ Council renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use 
at ieqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man at cliffslotneck at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at ieqtraining.com. Okay, it's probably trivia time. What do you think, Chris? Congratulations to John Lepotere of Microshield Environmental Services in Florida for correctly answering the last two microband trivia questions in succession. Remember, listeners, you can win a cool prize by outcompeting IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffslotnick at unsmoke.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, May 22, 2009. The Japanese water gardens at, at this Southern California sewage treatment water reclamation plant have featured prominently in several Star Trek movies. Name this water reclamation plant. Okay, how about some music for today's guest there, Chris? In the sewer underneath the street, I see things that are neat, although the smell is stifling. Found a freedom here in open air, where without a care I can see. Anybody without disguise as we learn to fly A life that's so alive In the sewer underneath the street I see things that are neat Although the smell is stifling All right, a big IAQ radio welcome goes out to Patrick Moffat who is Senior Environmental and Industrial Hygienist with Environmental Management and Engineering, Inc. in Huntington Beach, California. Patrick has almost 30 years of experience with cleaning up biologically contaminated environments. Patrick is a hospital infection control practitioner, a certified hazardous materials manager, an EPA registered environmental assessor, an IICRC master restorer, and holds general contractor licenses in several states. For almost 25 years, Patrick has lectured and taught on the subject of biological remediation throughout Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Since 1983, Patrick has published over 25 articles about biological contamination and over 50 other articles on the need for appropriate cleanup. Over the past 15 years, Patrick has researched how buildings should be cleaned and sanitized after a sewage backflow. This research resulted in his recently publishing two books. The first one is for janitors, housekeeping, and professional sewage cleanup contractors and deals with the health risks and in coming into contact with sewage and how to clean up sewage safely. The other book is for larger, more complicated spills and discusses what to do with contaminated building materials and contents and what is required to return the building and its environment back to a safe and healthy condition. Patrick's employer provides hands-on project management oversight and environmental clearance of larger complicated cleanup products across the United States and Canada. When a problem arises that results in a dispute or lawsuit, Patrick also provides expert witness testimony. Good afternoon, Patrick, and welcome to IEQ Radio. 
Good afternoon. I think it's unfair for me to answer your question, though. Your but I knew I know they questioned because I've actually worked at that facility. Well, the amazing thing is already you have been beaten to it by John Lepetier, so that's three in a row. But go ahead and give us the answer now, Patrick. It's Hyperion uh, 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 plant in in Hunting, in uh, Los Angeles downtown, right on right in the ocean at Manhattan Beach. Okay, the answer we had was Tillman Water Reclamation Plant. Is that the same one or different one? No, it's a little different. Tillman's a little bit more south than that. Uh, Hyperion has also been focused on quite a few of the movies. Oh, pretty cool, pretty cool. All right, well, speaking, well, is there something about raw sewage? Are there different types of sewage? What's raw sewage? Well, in, in brief definition, it's whatever comes out of the human body. Okay. Uh, that's raw sewage. Okay trying to keep this clean. By the way, the audience may, I'm, uh, I'm not a joke teller. Uh, I, I'm very bad at it, but uh, uh, sewage does happen, and you can put that in with a uh, four-letter word. But, okay. uh, it, you know, it does come out of the uh, human body, and uh, whatever spills on the ground is considered basically raw sewage. From a, a uh, professional point of view, it's any sewage that's considered untreated. Okay. What personal protective equipment do you need to, pardon me, hang on here. What personal protective equipment do you recommend to be worn by first responders to sewage intrusions? Well, let's look at this from two points of view. Mm -hmm. uh, the sewage treatment people that you're talking about are generally in the indoor quality business, so I'm assuming that you're talking about professionals that are getting paid to get the, the sewage cleaned up, not typically a janitor who's being told by building management to go clean up the uh, second floor sewage contamination that's, not, that's now spilling over the toilet. Right. Is that, is, am I right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, normally, protective clothing. Anything that's going to provide protection uh, of your skin and your personal clothing uh, that will not come in con that will allow it to not come in contact with sewage, as far as uh, as allows your clothing and your personal skin to not come in contact with sewage. As far as respiratory protection is concerned, in the past, if you talk to Center for Disease Control, they're going to say an N95 respirator is appropriate. Um, industry, uh, meaning the uh, IICRC committees and the indoor in the indoor air quality in Industry, have pretty much decided on a half or a full face respirator is more appropriate. Okay, what sort of uh, vaccinations would be recommended for people that are doing this type of work? From an OSHA compliance point of view, what you're looking at is that all persons, all technicians that are involved in water damage cleanup should have a tetanus vaccination. That's the first thing. The second thing as far as if you're dealing with sewage, it's hepatitis A. Most people think it's hepatitis B. And if you think of the word B for blood, uh, the Center for Disease Control in their wisdom says there is no blood in the <clears throat> uh, bloodborne pathogens in the uh, sewer system that should be that uh, non-hospital workers that are cleaning up non-hospital sewage situations should be concerned about. But um, there are cases, uh, uh, reportable cases of hepatitis B in sewage. So uh, if you talk to most uh, medical practitioners as occupational doctors, they would like to also have you uh, vaccinated and inoculated with the hepatitis B as well. I've heard that sewage water may contain hazardous chemicals in it, as well as bacteria waste. Is this true? Uh, surprisingly, yes. Um, there's a 
several articles uh, that have been written by uh, newspapers both in Canada and the United States that say uh, chemicals are now a major problem in the sewer systems uh, in the United States and Canada, and mainly in the illegal drug area. And uh, we can find trace amounts of methamphetamine and residual chemical byproducts uh, in sewage wastewater today. You know, Patrick, what are superbugs, and would they likely be found in uh, sewage water? There's a new. There's a. This is a term that came from hospitals. Uh, superbugs are uh, uh, resistant to uh, antibiotics. Methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. MRSA is is uh, one of the main ones that uh, we hear about. Uh, and uh, it's starting, th- th- that particular superbug and other superbugs are starting to be uh, more carefully identified in the raw, raw sewage as well as uh, in sewage treatment plants. You know, when this water is recovered, you know, through extraction, and also I, I suspect certain cleaning solutions might be used as, as part of the cleanup. Can this sewage wastewater legally be disposed back into a toilet or into a city manhole? I've been on several uh, programs with, like, the city of San Diego, the city of Los Angeles, uh, uh, city of Chicago, uh, and and the health officials from uh, the treatment plants say no. Uh, they say once you have custody, care, and control of that sewage, uh, it's yours, and we don't want it back. Uh, it's sort of like a painter that goes out and buys paint at a paint store. He takes it out the door, and he spills his five-gallon container. Uh, he owns that. He's responsible for the cleanup. Obviously, you can't put it back in the paint can and, and, and reuse it. Um, but it follows the same philosophy is that uh, once you uh, have control of the site, it's your responsibility for, for, for managing and, and disposing the waste. Yet... Uh, that said, um, us that are in the remediation business and us that are in the environmental hygiene side of cleaning this up uh, find that the toilet is the easiest place to put this stuff back into. And then what I'm saying about stuff, I'm talking about wastewater more so than sewage solids. If you've got carpet that's saturated with sewage solids and other materials that you can squeeze out the water, yeah, I, I don't see that a reasonable person wouldn't consider the toilet uh, for that environment and then the solid waste be disposed separately. Okay. Um. But there is another issue, Okay. if I can. Uh, the other issue is uh, when you have sewage, like in a crawl space, where it's come in contact with the ground. Uh, when you're extracting the sewage from the crawl space from the ground, uh, you're getting a lot of rocks and debris and soil uh, into the mix. Definitely that kind of sewage should be drummed and disposed. Well, I mean, you know, you kind of brought up the subject of, of crawl space, and we had uh, probably a couple of different questions that we'd like to discuss in regards to crawl spaces. Uh, so, um, Patrick, what what's a confined space, and would a crawl space be considered a confined space. From an, uh, if you look up a uh, crawl space in the internet, from an OSHA point of view, it's any space that you can enter any part of your body into that's not designed for normal human occupancy. 
So just by definition, a crawl space under a building is not normally designed for human occupancy. So it's considered a confined workspace. When does a crawl space or a confined workspace become a permit-required confined space? Anytime there's a hazard. A hazard can be engulfment, a hazard can be um, uh, electrical hazards, shock hazards, water sewage hazards, uh, any, any kind of a hazard where that can uh, uh, infect or contaminate or cause uh, a health-related problem to an employee, uh, including respiratory uh, problems because of hydrogen sulfide gas, uh, uh, methane, etc., that are sometimes associated with some sewage backflows. Uh, or long-term sewage that's been sitting into the ground, um, you know, may cause that environment to become a permit-required confined space. You know, when you when you use this term "permit-required confined space," you know, you mentioned that you're a building contractor and have licenses in, in several different states. And if you're going to build something, you know, you go down to uh, a municipal building and you pull uh, a permit. How does one get a permit? for a permit-required confined space? Um, the permit require other OSHA requirements, and again, I'm speaking about U.S. OSHA, not just California OSHA, but just uh, generally under OSHA, whether you're in the United States or Canada, um, it requires a one-day training course uh, in confined space training. And what you will learn in that course is how to add, uh, fill out your own internal form to make that a permit-required confined space. And your safety officer that's on the job will sign and ensure that that uh, crawl space is being entered and exited properly and that the work activities are being done appropriately and that the airflow and, the, and the, uh, any contaminated air is being extracted out of the crawl space. And at the end of the job, the safety officer signs off on that, uh, signing off on the uh, permit-required confined space. So essentially, if, I guess the learning point to this is that uh, the people who are doing the work are the ones that actually, they're the ones that control or permit people to come in or not come into this work area, correct? Uh, that, is, that is correct. Okay, good. It's not something that you have to go down to the city and get a permit um, or invite me as a health professional to set that up. Even though I'm qualified to do so uh, and I do provide that kind of service, um, uh, other companies can use uh, their own safety professionals that have gone through the confined space training to implement that. Is it more difficult to clean up sewage waste in crawl spaces and basements? Than in, say, a building, for example? Then, say, in a what place? A building, for example? A building? Yeah. Okay, I thought you said boating. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were throwing me a curve here, and all of a sudden I'm going to have to deal with a job that I dealt with uh, in Los Angeles Harbor in removing uh, uh, sludge out of a, uh, um, uh, a tanker. And uh, that was uh, sort of like a kind of situation where we had to be required by city and county to uh, follow all 
regulations, including uh, uh, permit required confined space. Um, that was unusual. But as far as buildings are concerned, normally in a building you have open outside air, you can open windows, you can get a lot of cross-air ventilation in. It's normally access for normal human occupancy. That's not the issue. When you get into a basement or a crawl space, all of a sudden it becomes a confined workspace. The atmospheres that are generated from the gases, the sewage, are not friendly to us. You know, so we got to take increased respiratory protection. Um, uh, quite often, it just—it's not just a little bit of sewage waste that's uh, on the basement from a sump pump that failed, or a broken pipe that's in a crawl space. It's a large amount of sewage. It, it's anywhere from the hundreds to the thousands of gallons, and all of a sudden you're schlepping in this stuff, and it's all over you. And you got to take rubber boots, and you got to take rubber clothing, and your respiratory protection is increased. As I mentioned, there's absence of lighting often in these spaces, and you're just uh, relying on a little flashlight to try to help you out. So there's a lot of major uh, health and safety issues that come into question when trying to clean up sewage in crawl spaces and basements. Okay. Um, why is it important to clean up sewage properly, Patrick? Uh, the main thing is that uh, we try to live in a healthy environment. I mean, you can imagine what it's like now. Today, we have these new buildings called LEEDs, and there's new certifications called LEEDs, L-E-E-D-S. And they're trying to make everything as green as possible so we can have a healthy, clean, environmentally safe, and breathably uh, friendly environment. So all the volatile organic compounds are... are, are uh, uh, safe around us for the, the time that we uh, are in the building. But the problem is that when a sewage contamination happens, whether it's in these new modern LEED uh, certified buildings or in your home or my home, is that it invites an unhealthy, safe environment. My first case that I got involved in in 1980 was a sewage damage job where I had to move a medical doctor out of his home because we didn't have any industry standards of care to follow to say what is required by uh, the homeowner or the insurance company uh, to put his home back into a safe condition. Um, biologically, from a biological point of view, is that sewage obviously has a lot of bacteria with it, and also what sewage loves to eat uh, is all the, you know, are what the bacteria uh, like to survive on is the organic building materials around it. Uh, and then what, it li what uh, likes to grow from bacteria is your mold. Your mold spores uh, like uh, the bacteria as a, food and as a food nutrient source. So it just goes on and on and on. It's an unhealthy, safe building environment where porous building materials need to be cut out and replaced. Gotcha. In mold remediation, we often install containment barriers and negative air processing equipment. Are these necessary and required in sewage cleanup situations? Uh, they are, especially when uh, the, uh, the building is still being occupied. You need to control your, your contained areas, your work areas, because remember, you have custody, care, and control of that environment, and anybody that enters that environment that's not authorized um, is uh, uh, a violation, I guess from an OSHA point of view. Uh, OSHA says, in fact, one of the biggest OSHA citation things that's going on on the West Coast right now is improper signage and not putting up barriers. Um, that's a violation from an OSHA uh, uh, mandate. 
Um, would you agree that some extra steps are required in dealing with sewage cleanup as opposed to mold remediation? Um, rephrase the question again, Cliff. Well, I was thinking about something else. Okay. Well, I guess uh, because of the extra steps required to clean up sewage waste properly, uh, we assume that cleaning up sewage would be more costly than cleaning up following a freshwater damage. Would you agree? Well, I, I agree from that point of view. Uh, there's a lot of extra steps that are being taken that you must take to clean up sewage properly. So from if you as a contractor are cleaning up sewage, you've got to have your employees do a lot of extra steps than just uh, extract the water, put some air movers in, and start drying the building and dehumidifiers and start drying the building properly. Um, this is very much similar to a, uh, a process where uh, three or four extra steps are required on many sewage contaminated jobs. I mean, in a freshwater loss, we're not generally taking out building materials, but especially carpet, but uh, uh, in a sewage condition, uh, we always take out carpet and pads and uh, affected lower drywall. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of extra steps that are involved. Since we cannot see microscopically, when is it necessary to hire a microbiologist or environmental professional to test a sewage cleaned up area? I like to have environmental professionals. In fact, the S-500 uh, talks about this, uh, the S-500. For those that are familiar with it, I'm talking about the IICRC S-500. Uh, in the S-500, the water damage uh, remediation document that talks about fresh water, Category 1, Category 2, and Category 3, um, it provides methods and procedures for uh, uh, cleaning up sewage, but it also provides uh, recommendations for suggesting that an environmental professional, such as an indoor environmental professional in the IEP, come in. Uh, that could be a microbiologist or uh, a, a practitioner in environmental health and safety to test that environment. Uh, normally, I like to have these kind of professionals ahead at the time of the project is beginning. Yeah, so we uh, so the contractor follows their direction all the way through the clearance. You know, when cleaning up sewage waste and contaminated building materials, can a restorer expect to achieve a 99% or 100% kill rate on harmful bacteria and then guarantee that to the customer? Well, the answer is, is not as clear as is just a... a, a couple yes or no's. Uh, where, the, where I'm going, I think, possibly with this question, in answering this question, is that 99% to an average person, well, if I've got 100% contamination, and if I reduce it to 99%, I should be safe. 99% uh, depending upon what kind of building. 99% uh, uh, in your home and my home may be uh, sufficient, but if it's a health facility, 99% uh, uh, may not be sufficient. Um, if you have a lot of coliform bacteria still remaining, uh, even though you're at a 99% kill rate, um, additional work still needs to be done. But it can be achieved, and you can almost get to 100% kill rate of all pathogens. Um, do you have or what is your recommended post-remediation verification sampling criteria for a sewage intrusion project? Uh, you know, let's just say it's a daycare center, and what would you consider to be clean? Well, 
again, I don't know how well the daycare center was uh, uh, from a pathogen point of view because I'm always going to find, even in most uh, uh, daycare facilities, you're going to find some coliform bacteria that's always around that environment to begin with uh, from around two and three, four-year-old children. Uh, but what you want to do is return it back to a sanitary state. And so we're, I would say that almost zero pathogens uh, is, is the, the intended goal, um, all, especially all your uh, biological markers such as E. coli. Um, that's the main biological marker that we use uh, in doing uh, analyses of contaminated environments. Uh, if it's a food environment, for example, if you're doing a food processing center, a, a restaurant, a fast food restaurant, uh, we don't want any um, coliform bacteria, <clears throat> especially your E. coli. But then we also don't want Salmonella, Shigella, Klebsiella, and quite a few other bacteria uh, types. So just using one marker as an indicator whether that's environmentally clean or not is, uh, ne needs to be um, uh, reevaluated. Okay. We're getting close to halftime, so I think what we'd like to do is bring in our technical director, Dr. Weil, and see if he has any comments on the, uh, the first half of the show, and then I think we're going to move over to uh, our newsman. Yeah, I think uh, just, uh, I, I just jotted it down, and uh, Cliff asked the right question. Do you have any criteria for reoccupation, post-remediation, clearance sampling, and so on? Uh, and, and you obviously answered that. You know, I live in my house for the last 30 years, and I know there are a couple of billion bacteria in here. And fortunately, none of them pathogenic. <laughs> so far, I haven't contracted any nasty diseases here. But uh, that is a difficult and tricky business to say, okay, we take a couple of samples. And I said, hey, we think that building is ready for uh, reoccupation. That is one of the comments, and I think we, we, we talked about it. The other one is when I predicted something which fortunately didn't take place, when we had the floods in New Orleans, and you, know, you name it, it was uh, swimming in there from dead rats and mice and snakes, uh, human waste and what have you. Yeah, not, not one of the toilets worked, nothing. And I said, my God, if I were a bacterium, uh, I would love <laughs> I moved to New Orleans right now. I'm going to have a wonderful, wonderful time uh, living down there. And uh, the amazing thing to me was that there weren't more infections um, uh, than there were uh, reported, which is unbelievable. And I heard a couple of theories. The water was so bad that no self-respecting bacterium would live in it. And I don't know. I, did anybody... Um, Center for Disease Control, did anybody look at this um, uh, scientifically? I think they did, actually. I, th I think they did, actually. Um, I think that Center for Disease Control looked at it, and I was involved with uh, working with uh, FEMA on, on an, an assessment team, damage assessment team. I remember I, you mentioned that, yes. And actually, one of the people that was with us took significant samples uh, in all these 10 buildings that we worked in. And, uh, you know, there's a long list of what they found, both in path pathogenic organisms and non-pathogenic organisms and also different insecticides and oils and stuff like that. But actually, science now has a term for all that stuff. Uh, it's called GKW, Dieter. GKW stands for God knows what because he's the only person that 
has uh, a handle on what's in there. Well, thanks for your comment. I think we're going to now move over to our newsman. Sure. Right, our leader of men, Glenn Fellman. Hello, Cliff. How are you today? I'm wonderful. How are you? Joe sends regards from the Caymans, but he can't get a line. So, uh, Tough life out there, I guess. I guess. That's, uh, that's okay. Thanks for having me on the show today. I've got some great news items for you. But before I get started, I wanted to say it's a pleasure to listen to Pat Moffat and talk about such an important subject, one that uh, has been near and dear to my heart for a long time, both because uh, I work in the industry and because I've been a victim of the problem. <laughs> Back up. So at the roundup, maybe we'll share some more stories. For sure. Uh, let's talk about some things that are happening. You know, when, when we uh, saw President Obama take office in, in January, uh, I said on this show that you could look for a lot of federal initiatives that were really going to impact uh, buildings and indoor environments. And now that uh, he's got his hands around the economy, we, we hope, and uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, he's put in policy. We're starting to see <clears throat> attention drawn towards indoor area issues, uh, both uh, within the legislative branch and the executive branch. Let's start and talk about what's happening in the House. The House has passed a green schools bill, and Senate action this week is possible. This is the uh, U.S. House of Representatives 21st Century uh, Green High Performance Built Public Schools Facility Act. It's a major effort to redirect public funding towards schools and other facilities that place a priority on sustainability, improved indoor environmental quality, and that kind of thing. In the House, the bill passed by a 275 to 155 vote, and prospects in the Senate looked pretty good. Obama has said that he will definitely sign it if it makes it to his desk. This bill authorizes more than $6.4 billion in grant funds to support school repair, renovations, and modernization projects in school districts nationwide. So that's a big program, could really give a shot in the arm to the nation's schools, which, as we all know, really need that shot in the arm. Another story coming off Capitol Hill. A new Capitol Hill coalition has named IEQ improvement as one of its key goals. As Congress is looking towards measures to reduce energy use in federal buildings, the leadership of what's called the High Performance Building Congressional Caucus Coalition has issued recommendations that would allow the widespread development of high-performance federal buildings. Uh, a report called Producing High-Performance Federal Buildings was developed at the request of uh, Congressman Russ Carnahan, who's a Democrat from Missouri and co-chair of the coalition. And uh, this was created as uh, part of an effort in Congress to heighten awareness and inform policymakers about the major impact buildings have on health, safety, and welfare. Uh, so here we've got another uh, great effort going on within Congress. Now, looking at things uh, from the executive side, uh, we've got a budget proposal coming out of the Obama administration for EPA. And it is huge what they're looking to do at EPA. Overall, President Obama is requesting $10.5 billion for EPA in fiscal year 2010. 
and that is a 37% increase over the fiscal year 2009 budget, the highest level ever for EPA. Unfortunately, what this budget is missing is a ton of money for indoor air efforts. As a matter of fact, uh, the indoor air uh, section is, is paltry. It's less than 1% of the total increase would go to the uh, to indoor air issues. Uh, there's a lot of money in there for some radon grants and for some other things, but if you read the 97-page EPA fiscal year 2010 budget in brief, and that's 97 pages in brief, it's at the EPA website, the word asthma is used only once in that report. The word allergy that comes up none, mold, none. And so while we are seeing a major increase in the EPA's budget, it does not look like a lot of that money is going towards indoor environments. Rather, it's going towards other issues like water pollution, Superfund sites, and so forth. That could change, but uh, for the time being, it's a little bit disconcerting. The last thing I wanted to talk about today is an issue that's been popping up and over, over and over again. It's Chinese drywall. Only now we're seeing a new twist on it, which is we're seeing the scams and we're seeing the, uh, uh, the people who are trying to profiteer off this. Uh, we're seeing all kinds of scare tactics, particularly down in Florida and South Florida, where uh, people are, are putting out these exorbitant prices on doing testing for it. Uh, saying that homes have to be torn down without having really good science that, that backs it. And even uh, some interesting fraud in Fort Myers this week, some homes that were going to go up for uh, auction suddenly had signs posted on them that said that they had Chinese drywall contamination and they were contaminated homes. Well, nobody from the state or, or, or any environmental authority had put those tags on. Uh, it's believed that those tags were put on by some speculators who are trying to drive down the prices of the homes hmm. so that they could they could get them uh, uh, next to nothing when they went on a foreclosure auction. So we're seeing all kinds of, of uh, funny things happen out of this Chinese drywall scandal, and some of it is not for the protection of the public. And that's something I'm, I'm hoping maybe in the second half, I know it's, it may not be on your agenda, but that maybe Patrick could talk about because I'm sure... Patrick has seen it. Uh, Patrick, you're he's a cutting-edge guy. Uh, he had information out on the streets about uh, about the, the flu, uh, H1N1, uh, way before anyone else did. Uh, I've watched Patrick. He's always uh, first on the scene with information and, and good advice. So if he's uh, on this Chinese drywall thing, I'm sure he can help out, too. Well, that's what I got for you today, Cliff. Thank you very much. Thanks, Glenn. It's, it's funny you kind of read our mind because actually that's what next week's uh, show's about. Uh, China, all right, Chinese drywall. So we're going to be uh, we're going to be all over it, and we'll see if uh, uh, we have any uh, you know comments again. Good, and you know uh, uh, one thing I hope you'll you'll talk about next week is I, I have a lot of friends uh, who come from China and have done some work with a lot of Chinese firms, and you know we're talking about a very tiny percentage of the drywall that comes out from China. A lot of people have uh, stigmatized China as a whole, and. You know, there's over a billion people there in China, and there's a lot of drywall manufacturing that goes on. This is uh, one, one, one tiny bit of that, of that market, so you got to keep that in mind. Well, I actually had Chinese food last night for dinner, so I don't know. <laughs> there <purchase>. you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'd like to thank our sponsors. Our newest advertiser is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable, mobile, PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends 
and thyroid.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, now available online. It's the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, a restoration abatement contractor shop at jondon.com. All right. Please thank those sponsors for us. They help uh, bring the show to you here every week. Okay. Back to Patrick. Uh, Patrick, you know, we, we've talked about uh, some of these building materials that would be removed from a sewage-contaminated environment, such as carpet, such as carpet cushions, such as drywall and moldings and, and so on and so forth. Uh, can this stuff just be put in a dumpster, or does it have to be handled as hazardous waste, or does it vary from area to area? As long as there's no chemicals associated with it or byproducts. Uh, we recently had a case where I had to bring in the Department of Health Services, and they considered it uh, potentially hazardous waste, and only because of that uh, the waste stream were, uh, that it came from was uh, uh, leaching uh, from an oil field. So uh, that particular contamination was uh, quite unusual, and on a case-by-case basis, you may find that uh, some government agency may require uh, uh, further involvement to where they're going to say that the du- they're going to direct where the dumping should go. But uh, on, a, on, a, on an everyday basis, you're going to find that uh, a regular landfill uh, will be able to handle this kind of waste. The only uh, issue to that is that any of the waste bags uh, cannot have liquid uh, matter in it and an absorbing compound. If there's any kind of liquid in there, it needs to be put in the, in, in the waste bag before giving it and transferring it over to a waste dump. What might be used as an absorbent compound? Sawdust or kitty litter or, or sand? or Almost anything. Any, anything that can be absorbent more so than the water itself or the material that's in the, in the bag that's already saturated. Um, it, it can be used. Uh, if you go to a paint store, they already have paint spill absorbents uh, that will absorb uh, more than, uh, you know, 100 times more than uh, the absorbent weight, and uh, they readily will absorb oils and grease and uh, uh, water. Okay. Do you, <coughs> excuse me. Do guidance documents exist for sewage intrusion cleanup other than the IRCRC S-500? Fortunately, no. Um, there are very few guidance documents, and if you look at even even EPA's website, uh, it talks a lot about mold, uh, but it doesn't give us any direction on how to clean up uh, sewage waste properly. Uh, there is some information from CDC on how to uh, clean up uh, hurricanes, uh, but in a regular situation where you and I walk into a, uh, a home that has five bedrooms, sewage water contaminated, and the contents are sitting uh, in there, there, there is very little direction, including from local health departments, other than to do so safely. And right. they leave that up to you. Um, do you know whether sewage intrusion would be a peril that's covered by, you know, most normal homeowners insurance policies, or is it a special type of coverage that someone has to get? Uh, I'm not an insurance specialist, so I, I, I can't comment on that other than to say what I've seen on a daily basis. Uh, if the sewage backflow, Cliff, had happened from your home 
whether it's a home, it's a, uh, a condominium, an apartment uh, from a high-rise building or a single-family home, as long as it uh, came from that environment, and that's your sewage. Uh, 99% of all policies, I believe, the HO policies uh, uh, cover sewage. The issue comes, uh, Cliff, is when sewage came from off the property, uh, such as a backflow from a city sewer main, uh, some insurance companies uh, uh, may protect you and provide coverage. Other ones are going to say, hey, listen, you need to go to the city and to have the city uh, cover the damage. Um, what method or methods do you recommend for dealing with soil in crawl spaces that's been contaminated by sewage? Good question. Um, in my classes, I talk about soil as contaminated ground that's outside the building. And so I'm trying to get contractors not to use soil as a four-letter word. In fact, to me, for, uh, soil is a four-letter word um, that I try to keep out of my reports when I'm talking about contaminated crawl spaces. Because the insurance, if it's going to be an insurance-covered claim, the soil is excluded in most policies that I'm familiar with. And so if you, what I did is I talked to several engineers that were part of a large legal case and uh, the uh, structural engineers say, call it attached ground. In other words, it's an engineered, the ground is an engineered part of the building. It was uh, compacted, manufactured, so that building can safely stand uh, for whatever life expectancy it's expected to have. So what you're doing is you're remediating the, the ground that's engineered under that building, including all the pier and posts uh, that hold the weight of that building. And if you disturb it too much, you can compromise the integrity of the structure if you start removing soil, uh, contaminated soil. Again, we're using the word soil just to, as a descriptive term, but we should be using the word engineered ground. Well, if you have this engineered ground, how would you recommend um, dealing with it? I mean, would you recommend leaving it in place? Would you recommend using bioremediation, you know, some sort of natural living organism to clean it up? Would you recommend, uh, you know, spraying it with bleach or disinfectants? You know, would you recommend covering it up with, um, you know, radon mat and, you know, negatively ventilating it, you know, out of the building? Or are there any techniques that you specifically like and any techniques that you... Well, there are, there are thank you. But the, the, the question is, or the problem that you just posed me is to answer six questions within one answer, and I can't do that. Uh, give me a situation and let's take it from there. Well, you know, I, I, I just guess we have a house and, uh, you know, it's a residence and we have this engineered soil that's underneath. And let's say that there was a uh, waste line in that house that broke and it's been dumping, uh, you know, black water, gray water into this uh, engineered soil for, you know, for some period of time. And, you know, there's visible solids on top of the soil. It smells bad. Uh, you know, what do you recommend be done with it? Well, the first thing is the assessment of the ground. Uh, if you're going to be looking at the ground and if you're going to be seeing that uh, there's standing wastewater on the ground, that means the, what, what, what's going on inside the soil matrix. The soil matrix is already full of water. You can't absorb anymore. That's why you've got standing water on top of the ground. So one of the first things you want to do is extract the water off the, off the, off the uh, top surface until you can get down to uh, uh, the wet ground. Okay. Uh, and that extraction process is usually uh, um, from a truck mount or some kind of other kind of extraction unit, uh, uh, waste pumps, 
that can be dumped into 55-gallon drums, and then the waste in the drums can be disposed properly at that point. Um, the next thing is determining how, what is the extent of the contaminated field. Uh, is, is the field the whole crawl space that's underneath the, uh, uh, the building, or just a small portion because it's, it's uh, close to the kitchen, and that's where uh, an old cast iron waistline had uh, uh, broke. If, it's a, if you're talking that it's a tiny little area, that's easily manageable. If it's a large area that contains the majority or all the crawl space, uh, then uh, it's going to take a lot of time because we don't know how long that that waistline has been broken. It could have been there for weeks, days, months, uh, and uh, for as long as it's been broken, it's going to be as long as it's going to take to probably clean it up. A good, another example of that soil situation is that if you, at the top of the soil, if you determine with a small uh, shovel or uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, unit that you can cut into the ground and determine that only the first two, three inches you have some uh, kind of wastewater contamination in it and the ground below that appears to be fairly solid, then that probably just recently happened. But if all of a sudden, if you use a soil probe and uh, you go down two, three, four feet, and you find that the whole ground is saturated underneath uh, that structure, you're going to be spending a long time trying to bio-augment and bio-remediate that ground and, and extract all the water out of it. You know, in the sure. east, in, in the east where we live, uh, most houses, you know, would have finished basements. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, one-story homes, ranch-type homes that might not have a basement. And in these ranch homes, they may have ductwork, which actually is underneath the slab. This ductwork could be made up of metal, and sometimes, sometimes it might actually be uh, terracotta. Uh, these homes might have been built in the 1950s or 1960s. Uh, is, what would you do or what would you recommend in, in a situation where we have a house uh, it's, it's built on a slab, there's ductwork that's underneath, let's say it's metal ductwork, and that uh, sewage contamination, uh, you know, got under the first floor of the house and entered the ductwork. Uh, what would you recommend for decontaminating that? Well, you pose two different situations. You, uh, again, we're talking about crawl spaces and, and uh, pipeline crawl space breaks. Um, as long as in that kind of situation, as long as the sewage did not come in contact with the ductwork, uh, quite often the ductwork can be saved. But if the ductwork is sitting on the ground, then the ductwork should be removed and disposed. In situations that you just posed where the sewage happened up on the upper floor and because it's a, a floor vent, for example, and uh, entrained into the, migrated into the floor vent uh, in the crawl space, then uh, we recommend removing and replacing them, whether they're metal or uh, flex ducting or terracotta. Well, we've actually got some t a lot of texted in questions from listeners. Um, I think they're looking for some focus on different types of procedures which could be utilized for decontaminating the soil. You know, to a certain point, I guess you have to make a decision of what you're going to take out, what you're going to leave in. Could you cover for the listeners how you would, you know, make that decision about, you know, where to stop and then, you know, make some sort of recommendation on what you would do with soil that you suspect, you know, has some level of contamination that's going to be left this compacted, I'm sorry, what did we call it? Com engineered, engineered. engineered ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the the issue is several. Uh, one, once you get rid of the wastewater, or whatever process or method that you use to do that, the next process is is um, 
making that a safe workspace for employees. Again, we can't, we can't, uh, 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 you know, cannot recognize that OSHA's got some uh, uh, responsibility to our, our, we've got some responsibility to OSHA to make sure that our workers are working in a safe workplace as much as possible. And uh, to do so requires proper, appropriate lighting, appropriate ventilation, exhaust ventilation, uh, getting in fresher air from outside, uh, wicking off the moisture that's on the ground, so installing fans on, uh, on, the, on the ground itself, um, and making it as a e as friendly environment as possible. The, the, the next thing is determining what am I going to do with the rest of the waste now that the standing water is off the, the ground. I, for me, uh, and, and again, it's just a procedural uh, thing, uh, I, I like to introduce heat. Um, I like indirect fired heaters where uh, you're going to heat up the crawl space. Uh, what's going to cause at that time is you're going to get a lot more wicking of the moisture off the soil, uh, especially when you've got good airflow underneath there, and you're going to be able to ventilate a lot more of the uh, uh, contaminated water uh, out of the building uh, with, with increased heat. Uh, the faster that you can wick the moisture uh, off the soil, the better you're going to be. Um, also, the other thing, too, is that once the ground is somewhat malleable and uh, you can work with it and you're not just uh, 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 mucking it out, for example, um, um, the contractor, when the ground is somewhat manageable, is going to be able to rake and remove any solid debris at that point, um, any solid waste. Uh, a lot easier instead of just removing a lot more soil that may not be necessary to do so. I guess when soil's removed, you would advise, you know, putting back new soil to replace it or covering, you know, would covering uh, a contaminated area or suspected contaminated area with, uh, you know, with new fresh soil, would, would that be advisable? Well, it is advisable, but geographically what I'm finding is that different states, because of frost line issues, construction issues, water table issues, um, all uh, were engineered to, to be a, a specific to a certain either compaction or vapor pressure uh, uh, where the moisture normally vaporizes out of the ground. Um, so if you put plastic underneath uh, some buildings, it, it may be appropriate. Other buildings, it may not be appropriate. Um, what I like to come in with is construction-grade sand, um, common uh, household sand where you can uh, put a clean layer of sand. The sand allows the soil still to evaporate, but anybody that has to crawl in there under the house in the future uh, is not uh, just on uh, wet, contaminated ground. Um, you know, in doing this cleanup of... You know, let's say we're, we're cleaning up cement, uh, you know, cement materials, wooden subfloors, and, and so on and so forth. Do you prefer hot water or cold water? In a crawl space? Uh, it could be a crawl space. Yeah, I, I guess, uh, yeah, crawl space. Well, the crawl space is already a wet environment anyway if, you're, if, if it's sewage contaminated. And going in there with a spray uh, method to try to wash... Uh, the uh, pier and post down, the concrete slab down, uh, the, the concrete foundation walls uh, may be appropriate in some cases. Uh, everything I do is on low pressure. Um, I try to keep below uh, 250, 300 PSI. All right. Well, I guess at this particular point, we're running out of time. So what we're going to do now, Patrick, is we're going to go to what we call the roundup, and uh, everyone's going to come back and uh, eat 
everyone gets a chance to ask somebody else a question. So you can ask me one or we'll ask you them. And I think we're going to so do our roundup music there, Chris. Okay, we're going to lead off with Annie, then we're going to go to Dieter, and then we'll go with Glenn. Annie. Yeah, Patrick, I have a question here. Um, have you ever heard of a sewage line exploding and catching fire? Unfortunately, yeah. Um, it, what happens is that uh, you get a lot of sulfuric gases that build up uh, in older sewer lines. And uh, we've had several, I've been involved in several cases where um, the sewer line has exploded. Uh, in, in fact, the one of the things that in training uh, sewage uh, workers, uh, treatment plant workers uh, that have to work in cleaning out the sewer laterals, sewer lines, the main lines, is that they're trained to recognize uh, uh, and monitor for situations that may cause explosions. Okay, uh, Dr. Dieter. Yeah, I have a practical uh, uh, question which wasn't a problem for me when I was an employee of the University of Pittsburgh. I happen to have in my kitchen in triple bags about $3,000 worth of old nickel-cadmium batteries. I, strong, I could get rid of them very easily by dumping them here and there in my garbage. I don't believe that they belong into the ground. I want them, and it has, it's indirectly has something to do with water and water treatment and water pollution. Uh, once in a while I hear on the radio there is somewhere a, a station where you can uh, drop them off. I never know where these stations are. I, that, has to be, that has to be a huge problem. We spend billions of dollars a year on uh, batteries, and I'm sure that a lot of people just throw them in there and say, heck with it. And obviously the garbage man does not sort through your garbage and say, hey, this is good, this is bad. Well, in NICAD batteries, uh, which is a different subject than sewage, but uh, as a hazmat specialist, I'm familiar with, with uh, what we usually call roundup days, uh, where uh, the local fire department uh, will have uh, days where you're, you're, you're to bring your computer monitor, your computer boards, uh, your old batteries to a, uh, a place, and then they will send those out for recycling. So my advice would be to... Uh, contact your local fire department and find out where the nearest roundup day would be. Oh, okay. Glenn. Yeah, I'd like to ask a question. If I want to go off topic as well, if you don't mind. Go ahead. I wanted to talk for a minute about H1N1 because uh, Patrick put out some, some pretty good guidance on that, uh, uh, especially when uh, fears were at their, their strongest. We've seen uh, right where I live uh, uh, schools closing. Uh, for as long as 10 days, and I know that some schools are closed in New York just this week as well. And I understand that's to keep the, the large populations of, of, of young people away from each other, essentially. But I've also seen schools spend a lot of money on disinfection while they're closed. Is that necessary, or will the H1N1 virus that might be lying on a desktop or on a locker handle die on its own if, if no one's in the building for a week? Well, the answer is yes, it will die on its own over time. 
the the problem is is that the scare factor that we've got with the public as well as the schools, the liability issue as well is why don't we just go in and do a general good surface cleaning of our uh, classrooms, bathrooms, et cetera, where we know this virus may may be. And I wrote a procedural document and be glad to, to send it out to anybody that would like to have it as far as uh, um, methods and procedures for uh, abating the H1N1 in their schools. Thank you. Patrick, uh, where do you see the cleanup technicians education cycle going uh, for people that are doing this work? You know, any crystal ball predictions of what, what, you know, what they're going to need to know over the next couple of years? Well, we've already talked about confined space. I, I definitely see that uh, if you're entering a crawl space or contaminated basement, uh, regulations are going to be a little more stricter and tighter, and schools are going to be teaching confined space uh, uh, containment procedures more. Uh, I think that's one of the, uh, the the key issues. The second thing is that uh, I see that for new business, working contractors go now that they've got all different levels of advanced training, and one of the levels of advanced training they're going to want to get is a 40-hour hazmat. <clears throat> Because I see also the same contractors that are doing sewage trying to get into the meth lab cleanup uh, uh, business as well. And that's definitely an area that requires 40-hour hazmat as a foundation uh, uh, for their methods and procedures uh, for cleaning up uh, any kind of uh, hazardous waste. Is that – I'm sorry, go ahead. But – and then I, w I was just going to say that, uh, you know, you can move this along into all of a sudden, once you've got your 40-hour hazmat training, uh, it opens up many other doors for you. Is that 40-hour hazmat the same thing as hazwopper or is hazwopper? Correct. Okay. Yeah, it had the hazwopper training, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Patrick, we, we want to thank you for joining us. It's been a, a really enlightening interview. I mean, uh, we had a lot of listeners on, a lot of questions, and, and so on and so forth. But we, what we always like to do is give the uh, the guest uh, really the last last two questions. First of all, is there anything that you'd like to add, any areas that you know we didn't cover, anything that you'd like to? Well, I would like to see industry, the ICRC, for example, who is on the main stage of, that created the um, S-500 standard, actually in, uh, put in their manuals for contractors in the future an actual chapter on sewage and how sewage should be done. If you try to find uh, where to find everything you ever want to know about Category 3 water conditions, uh, you've, you've got to search uh, all throughout each, each page of the uh, standard to try to come up with the answers. Uh, what you should or shouldn't be doing, uh, worker protection, uh, methods and procedures, uh, and I would actually like to see a chapter in future revisions uh, in that manual. I think that's a great suggestion. How can our listeners contact you and get more information about you and the services that you provide? I work for a company in Southern California called Environmental Management and Engineering Incorporated. We're in Huntington Beach, which is Southern California. Um, our office phone number is 714 379-1096 and if they have questions or if they uh, you know either about this program or about other things that we do on the industrial environmental hygiene uh, side any of our teaching courses uh, uh, etc they can always call the office and, and contact me or Tom here in the office um, if they want to email me directly I have no problem with that uh, it's Pat Moffett P-A-T Moffett M-O-F-F-E-T-T at att.net, and uh, I respond to all emails. 
Well, thank you very much. Uh, before we sign off, I'd like to thank our guest, Patrick Moffitt, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, the wingman, Chris Boisel, guest host, Ann Koalecki, the IAQ newsman, Glenn Fellman, our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. has been another IAQ Radio production.